Hello and welcome to the fourth edition of Another Brick in the Wall, the monthly podcast from Radiant Camera, hosted by me, Pedro Clark, which focuses on materials, architecture, construction, and sustainability. My guest today is Matthew Barnett Howland, architect and director of research at CSK Architects, as well as a tutor at the Bartlett UCL London. Matthew is here today to talk to us about cork, one of the most exciting products in the construction industry and a personal favorite of mine. Cork was the material which Matt chose to build the award-winning cork house in London. Hi, Matt. Thank you for being on the show. Hi, Pedro. I think the first question I'd like to ask you is, how did you come across cork? It is not widely used in the UK yet. So please tell us, how did this journey start for you? So uh, we actually came across cork, first of all, in relation to using it as a breathable form of external wall insulation on our old Georgian brick house, um, which you wanted to uh, render over on the, on the north face and over insulate. Uh, and cork seemed like a, a nice robust substrate for that um, and a breathable one, as I said, which is quite important in those old brick buildings. And then via that, we came across this interesting guy who was experimenting with the use of cork as a as an all-in-one construction material. Um, it's called Alan Creaser. And he unfortunately dropped out of the whole process quite early on. Uh, and we took it from there, really. So we took some of his thinking and developed it in relation to our own agenda, which we'll come back to later, and undertook some sort of initial curiosity-led research uh, and workshop experiments um, in the Bartlett. That culminated in sort of building a small prototype, the first one called the Cork Casket in 2014. And that was using the 5,000 quid of seed funding from Innovate UK. And then I had access to the Be Made workshop at the Bartlett via my collaborator, Oliver Wilton, who was director of education at the Bartlett at the time. That was the first thing we did. And on the back of that initial very small project, it showed enough potential really. And then the whole thing sort of um, gathered momentum from there. And on the back of that, we applied for a much bigger full-scale funding grant with a full research team from academia and industry. That's that's how it all came about. As much as Cork House is a project on its own, it draws much on your research and becomes a very unique one. As it really is, as far as I'm aware, the first time it's used in modern architecture as a fully load-bearing structure. Yes, and, and also built to UK building regulations. I think Amrim have, have done one or two funny little things on their own site and so on. The object here was to really undertake enough research to the point where we could design the first, as you say, load-bearing habitable house um, to UK building regulations. Um, and I guess, yes, that's right. That is what makes it unusual. In the early conversations, we were interested in, in that Cork's quite unusual combination of properties. So looking at sort of precedents and some of the products that Amrium sold and so on, we started to get a feel for the fact that you, it does in a funny way lend itself to being used for all the different functions required of a building envelope. So as you say, main one structure. Um, and it's obviously insulating because that's sold as really, isn't it, in the construction industry by and large. Expanded court we're talking about now. Obviously it's sold as uh, internal finishes. Uh, uh, Demora uh, and Caesar used it in... 2000 for the first time as an external cladding product for the Hanover Expo, which then got rebuilt in Coimbra. So you can see you start to start to get a feel, and then we thought, you know, it's also breathable, so it possibly could work okay in terms of um, moisture transfer across the building envelope. And so 
that was a thesis really could you make an entire building envelope walls and roof out of this strange um, single plant-based material the cork blocks that were used and this type of cork product has quite a dark color this is a result of its cooking process but could you tell us a bit more about how it becomes so the cork is called, as I said, it's called expanded cork, and it's an important distinction to make from the main business of Amarin. Well, there's two other main businesses. One is obviously cork wine stoppers and so on, um, which is the prime cork. And then from that, there's another industry called Amarin Cork Composites, um, ACC, and they make what they call agglomerated cork, which generally uses glues and binders um, in the manufacturing process. And they make, you know, all sorts of, uh, well, make lots of high performance gaskets and things and, and consumer products. Like, you know, you might see table mats or tables in Ikea or something. But then there's this little funny branch of Amarim called Amarim Cork Insulation. And they have a very small turnover compared to those other two industries. But they take the waste cork from those industries. They take the low grade cork from the higher branches of the cork tree and during the harvest. And then that's granulated, poured into these big pressure cookers uh, and then it's heated to about 370 degrees centigrade and while that, that heat uh, and pressure causes this natural resin in the cork called suberin to be released and as the cork expands it's bonded back with these with natural juices inside it uh, and they come out like big gnarly um, loaves of bread uh, and then they're sliced up to form um, insulation boards uh, normally. When you see it coming out of the ovens it actually reminds me of a Christmas pudding, dark and smouldering. Then it's cut up into blocks, such as the ones used for the house. It's got similar. It's got similar smell, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So generally, it's sold in thinner sheets, as sort of one or two hundred mil or something like that. There's creaser insulation. In detail, it, it's it's generally sold at one thousand by five hundred millimeter sheets, and then the very various thicknesses. And we went for the thickest one that we could achieve in the high grade facade type blocks that we wanted to use. Called, called, it's just called MD Facade is their product name for it. And that was about 220 millimetres thick, which after machining, the tongue and the groove into the blocks gave a, a coarse height of about 180 millimetres. And that is essentially the metrics and the structure that guides this whole design. As this podcast is really a radio show, do you think you could try and describe what it's like to be inside the house? For those of you listening at home who haven't seen the house, now is the time to probably Google it and see if you can find the photo, as this will really help it bringing this to life. It's difficult enough even with photographs, actually, because it's interesting, when people come to the house, they're always impressed, it's a funny word, but more impressed with the um, building in the flesh uh, than, than, they, than they are in the photographs. So it's going to be even more difficult um, just in words. It smells good. Oh, there you go. Not very useful on a radio show. Um, it's quite dark and atmospheric in some ways. So, well, it's, well there's a strong kind of chiaroscuro effect. You know, there's, there's, so it's five pyramids, each one with a um, domestic function. So sleeping, sitting around a fire, cooking, washing, and so on. Each pyramid is, is uh, truncated at the top, so, which lets in uh, light. So there's a roof light on top of each pyramid. It's slightly soft to the touch, obviously. Um, it's got a really nice visual texture. It's quite unlike uh, lots of modern buildings that you see. In some, you know, it, it, it's got a lot of atmosphere uh, and texture and grain um, and smell. It's a really kind of rich, uh, slightly, um, well, I guess when you first go in, it's quite, it's reasonably overwhelming kind of sensory experience. I find this sensorial aspect really interesting. And after two years, 
you'd expect it really to start to fade away. Yeah, I still get it actually. Um, it's a really nice smell. It's uh, uh, when I was with uh, Carlos Manuel, who runs Amarin Cork Insulation, he was telling me when it's cooked, the carbon uh, reforms into chains that are very similar um, to vanilla, apparently. So you get this funny mix of burnt, you get some get woody, woody bits and some burnt, so you get this funny mix of it's quite smoky, burnt, vanilla-y um, smell. It is really nice. I mean, I'd say almost everyone likes it. It looks quite like a stone house, how much we've spoken about before, um, because in, the sen- in essence, it, it, it sort of has been made and built a bit like a stone piece of architecture, um, or what architects will call stereotomic building. Uh, so it's big lumps that are carved up into shapes that interlock, and then it's one thing on top of another. So it's a very simple um, load-bearing, compressive structure, if you like. And that's the other thing I should say, actually, when you're in the house, is that probably the most powerful thing is because everything's exposed, it's made of one single material from inside to outside. So everything's on show. So you, what you're, when you're inside this, um, these, these corbelled pyramid roofs, there's a very strong sense of... Um, of weight moving down from block to block, course to course, as it comes down and around you and into the walls. It's a very sort of sheltering, kind of enveloping. A very tectonic building. It's unusual the extent to which you sense weight. So as you've mentioned, this research first started with the Bartlett, then another larger grant. How important has this research component been in your work as an architect and in this project in particular? I've always quite enjoyed that sort of sense of experimentation, finding out stuff either for yourself or that hasn't been found out before. Um, there's obviously a very simple excitement to that, isn't there? And in terms of this project in particular, um, yeah, I mean, it was hugely important. You know, we were asking Cork to do a lot of work in this building, as I said, to fulfill all those functions. Uh, but the flip side of that versatility uh, of the Cork, being able to fulfill all of those, is that it only does all of those functions just about. So we had to take the research to make sure you know that it, that it, that it was, that it was going to work in, in, in the various ways that one requires a building to work keeping the, the weather out it being airtight it structurally working um, particularly in relation to creep with the cork because it's quite squishy because it's about 150 kilograms a cubic meter which is about a third of softwood for example and it is compressible so under a lot of weight with the weight of a building the height decreased over the first year or so about 25 mil so we had to build that into the design so we did fire test at the building research establishment the fire testing is an interesting question as i've actually seen the live tests at the amarine factory for our own work and unbelievably cork and polystyrene for insulation have the exact same flammability rating here in portugal but although cork can sort of ignite it chars and slowly extinguishes itself not really allowing for much spread of flame cork house i was surprised to see you actually built in a sprinkler system we undertook enough characterization of the material to understand how it behaved in relation to fire to a certain extent or to to the extent that we had to understand it for the house we wanted to build if that makes sense um we don't know everything about cork and fire but we know what we needed to know for our little project and then from that characterization as they call it Arup, who were also the fire engineers as well as the structural engineers, they um, extrapolated, if you like, the, the behaviour of the cork and then designed the house accordingly to meet UK fire regulations um, for that specific project. 
you know, it's, it's, it's very different when you're using combustion materials. They have the same thing with CLT, cross-laminated timber. So if you want to build a building according to regulations, then it's best to use um, non-combustible materials like steel and coke. The moment you're using um, combustible materials, it's on a case-by-case basis. So it's very, very complex is the first thing. It's the same in the UK that it has the same Euro class, it's Euro class E, which basically means pretty rubbish. Because there's two types of fire, there's spread of flame, and then there's structural integrity, how it performs in terms of load bearing as it, as it burns out. We knew enough about it, as I say, designed this single story house where there were no other floors that the walls were carrying. There's only a roof which decreases the fire rating, but I had to as you say, incorporate a sprinkler system, which is interesting. Obviously, when you've got no linings or voids or anything to hide behind. So, yeah, that became this lovely thing in the house. Actually, this is kind of um, for quite sculptural, um, funny sort of copper pipes which go around the, the cork pyramids um, to the sprinklers, two sprinklers in each pyramid, actually. It was that sort of project. You know, so we, we start with a thesis um, and then you work your way through all the problems that that thesis presents you with, fire research and design-based thinking, obviously, uh, and then hopefully the design becomes what it is by virtue of that process rather than preconceiving a design, if you sort of make a slight difference, and then trying to force that design through. We actually sort of follow the set of principles and a line of thinking. Um, for example, you know, with fire, quite common in architecture is to, if you've got steel or something which doesn't perform very well in fire either, you would uh, either paint it, um, which obviously didn't want to apply anything to the cork, or you would, um, or you would wrap it in some kind of fireboard. You know, it wasn't part of the um, thesis of the project. Hence, we ended up with this sort of sprinkler system. Speaking about the thesis of the project, from what I've studied, there were another two key components. One, you wanted to use as much natural products as possible, and two, making sure that the materials which could not be natural could be easily disassembled for reuse or recycling. Yeah, so that's that's the result of this sort of a whole life approach that developed, if I'm honest, through the course of the project, actually. We didn't start necessarily with that view or that approach uh, fully formed. It's that's, that's actually the most interesting thing that's come out of the project is actually the approach as much as the building for us, um, is to think through how buildings perform across the whole of their life cycle. So hence, we've got this phrase that we call them, form follows life cycle. Obviously, a playful on the original aphorism. So that means that the building form, as I say, is a result uh, of thinking through um, impact, environmental sustainability impacts uh, of making and inhabiting buildings, um, but looking at it at the beginning during the design process in relation to each stage of the building life cycle, right through from where the materials come from, the design process in the office, how they get to site, how they're made on site, put together, um, how they perform in use, obviously, which is, which is obviously a well understood idea, but then in relation to what you just mentioned, uh, what happens at the end of the building's life, as they call it. Now, obviously, it's important that we build buildings to last as long as possible. But I think it's important that we also acknowledge the temporality of buildings. And that, like us, they do generally, 99% of the time, have a life. Uh, and they do come to the end of that life. And then it's a question of what happens you know, in terms of environmental impact of buildings. What happens at the end of that building's life? You know, either it has to stay 
uh, in what's you know the technical cycle or or in the cycle of human use, let's call it, or it can go back into you know biodegrade back into the um, biosphere to generate uh, new growth um, in the biosphere. Uh, now, in order to do that. If, for example, you're building with a plant-based material and you want it to end up at the end of the building's life in 300 years, let's say, not unreasonable, given that most houses last on average in Europe for about 100 years, if you look at the data. After that 300 years, you need to maintain the purity of that plant-based material so it doesn't have any glues attached to it. For example, no binders, no um, wet plaster, no cement, no mortar, no fire treatment, no nothing. And that's quite a tricky thing to do, actually, and that's... What obviously a lot of the research was about is how do you get to the end of the building's life and end up with this pure plant-based material which is what unusually expanded core is in the first place but how do you maintain that purity right the way through um, so that at the end of it it can go back into the natural resource system from whence it came this really must have increased the complexity of the project not just its conception but in its detailing waterproofing and so on so cork is the main material then as many other plant-based materials, um, if we needed to use other materials to make sure those are plant-based. And then um, if not plant-based, um, then to be easily removable and disassemblable, uh, which also isn't that easy, actually. So there's two main types of fixing in cork glass. One is the um, dry-jointed friction fit, which is how the blocks fit together, just a tongue and groove joint with a there's a very tight machined fit between the tongue of one block and the groove on the underside of the next block going on top of it, um, or obviously just straightforward mechanical fixing, which in general was we try to keep as bolted, and if not bolted, then screwed, and everything accessible, nothing covered up. So you literally, I'm pretty sure, without actually wanting to do it myself, the cork house is demountable, as it were. And, it, and you would take it down literally in the reverse order that you put it up. That's what's also nice about it. It has this kind of very horizontal, stratified logic to the assembly process and to the tectonic, obviously, at, at the end of it. Since we're talking about mounting and dismounting it, how long did it take you to build the whole structure? If I compressed all the kind of gaps in, in research and things going wrong and wait other things to happen and so on, if I took out all those things that happened as when a live building is part of a research project. I'd say it took two of us about a year from top to bottom. And this was a building which not only did you design, but you physically built yourself. How important do you think that was? And how important was it that you were the client on such an experimental building? Yeah, I guess obviously um, being the person in charge of the money helps because you then the challenge becomes how to put your, well, how not to chicken out, doesn't it? And to make sure that you leave your money where your mouth was that's probably the most useful thing. But obviously, there's also a degree of risk um, to a project like this. But you know, it's not that. It wouldn't have been unmanageable because obviously, there are, you know, you, you manage those risks through risk register and so on. And um, as part of your team, you, you know, have monthly meetings and work through that. But that's sort of all those different roles that I played in that. Obviously, I guess there's also just a, in more broadly, there's a kind of um, single-mindedness and, and an intensity, I guess, to the project that comes out of having that level of control. I and mean, obviously there are downsides to that level of control and that, and yeah, I mean, it's always good to have actually clients and other, you know, but we were a team. There was a, there was a pretty, pretty big research and design team. So there was still a dialogue 
I mean, obviously, the research is part funded by Innovate UK and EPSRC and by the industry partners and the academic partners um, uh, and by me. But then, all, but obviously, then the house itself was fully funded by me, which was just a straightforward case of um, some I mean, inheritance from my old man who was an architect who died um, while we were designing it and uh, left us the money. It seemed like a nice, uh, a fitting way to spend it. Yeah, although I don't really, I think probably as an architect, you probably don't think like that, do you? I think you just do it build it, photograph it, move on. Was this the first building that you physically built yourself? So there was a secret agenda, obviously, to the whole thing, which was the self-build angle. It wasn't secret, but I mean, it was it was sort of secondary, but you know, that's the kind of thing that, in a funny way, really drove it for me, obviously, because just lovely opportunity to be in the workshop with machines and on-site um, making buildings. You know, I personally find that massively rewarding. So that was quite nice to spend a few years, not in an office. As we've discussed, the construction side of the job and leading a building as an architect is the way we are also pushing our work. Yeah, I think it's really fruitful if you can bring those two together as well, you know, to make that continue, that dislocation between those different stages. On the one hand, it, it makes a lot of sense to have specialisms and so on, obviously. Um, but another level, it, it can create um, a quite strange looking built environment, can't it? At the end of it, that's made of all sorts of weird stuff. And, um, and actually, if you can get those things together and the client and the and, and the designer and the contractor, then actually that joined up thinking can maybe be used to address some of the slightly strange outcomes that we're, well, that 99% of the time we build, quite honestly, yeah. The building had a below zero carbon rating at completion, which is amazing, knowing that most of the structural material had to be shipped from Portugal to the UK. How was this assessment carried out? And how difficult do you feel this sort of study is for other projects and architects to engage with? We had it undertaken by a specialist called Sturgis Carbon Profiling, which are no longer in existence as a company, but their founder is Simon Sturgis, who's probably a leading practitioner in terms of carbon thinking in the, in the UK. And it was undertaken to a standardised methodology, BSEN 15978, I think it is. Uh, <laughs> so, which is obviously sets out... Um, very specific methodology. Now, that isn't undertaken in all cases, and there's a lot of variation across the industry uh, in terms of how it's calculated and how what, you know, what the definitions are. Um, it's an incredibly confusing area, actually. So all I can really say is that Sturgis Carbon Profiling undertook it to a standardised methodology. And as you say, the transporting of the cork used up roughly half of the carbon that had been sequestered into the cork during manufacturing, roughly. And then that left us with a, you know, then the other bits of construction take up a bit more carbon and so on. And then we were left here with a small amount at the end um, that meant we could say that we were carbon negative um, at completion. We're working on a net zero project at the moment where the UK Green Building Council, who um, standardised those carbon calculations at the moment, I think, um, certainly in relation to net zero, sequestration isn't counted in those calculations. But I think it's important at this point in time to say that sequestering carbon in plant-based materials is an incredibly useful thing to be doing right now. now. We're looking at, obviously, as everyone knows, a fairly tricky set of numbers when it comes to carbon over the next few decades. So even though carbon stored in buildings eventually will obviously be released back into the carbon cycle, back into the atmosphere at some point in the future. At this point in time, um, it's bloody useful to be locking it up in large amounts in big structures like buildings. So I'm not quite sure at the moment about why 
it's not included in some form in the methodology, but that's obviously way above my pay grade. Staying on the same topic, how does the building perform now? Sort of anecdotally, um, it's a really lovely environment to live in. It's got the, the roof lights are openable at the top of the pyramid, so you get a natural um, stack ventilation in the summer. Um, it seems to be incredibly stable, uh, stable thermally in the summer, which we're not surprised at, but just it's quite, you know, it's quite, it's, yeah, um, we weren't necessarily expecting that because often in hugely over-insulated buildings, they can be slightly live environments. Um, but this seems pretty stable, um, actually. And in the winter, the only source of heating is a direct vent log burning stove. Um, so we're undertaking some post-occupancy evaluation at the moment, some POE with the Bartlett. We're weighing logs and that kind of stuff and, and, and recording solar panel input and various other things and then the weather station and so on. I'm trying to see whether this thing performs as stated in the Sturgis Carbon Profiling Report. Because obviously what the industry really lacks at the moment is any hard data on that stuff. Um, it's really difficult to get hold of. But there's an environment that seems to work well in both situations, hot and cold. Acoustically, it should also behave in a very particular way, as cork is naturally very sound attenuating. So I imagine when you walk in, you must walk into some sort of absolute silence. Yeah, it's hugely no calming, echo. which is someone who isn't necessarily that calm. Um, it's quite useful. Dida's parents live in there now. Yeah, and they say it's lovely. To, it's very um, calming, largely because of the acoustic. It's very dampened, you know, because Amrium sell this expanded cork as an acoustic cladding. So it is, and it's ballot. It's not, obviously, you don't want to make it too dead acoustically because it becomes a bit spooky. So the how the acoustics are balanced by, you know, a hard wooden floor, a reasonable amount of glazing, a bit like the lighting. It's sort of balance of the darkness and absorbency of the cork um, with other materials to kind of give you a, a sort of overall balanced environment acoustically and in terms of daylighting. Given all the media attraction and the awards, how much work has this project generated for you now? Yeah, impact per square inch has been quite high. Yeah, or, or sometimes almost to the point where, you know, it isn't quite fair that it, you know, that it's expected to carry that. <laughs> um, because to some extent, you know, it's never about um, building more cork buildings. Um, it was a slightly rhetorical exercise. Um, and this, uh, maybe even to some extent, maybe it's better to look at it as a, as a metaphor for what we want uh, and need from our built environment right now, you know, rather than this is a model for a, a construction system that we should roll out in the hundreds of thousands. I think it's more about uh, the, the principles of it that, it that it's demonstrated. This takes us back to some of the early ideas we discussed about the importance of research in creating this full cycle in building. Mm, it's about letting the whole life approach to construction and habitation determine uh, what the architecture is uh, and how it performs. Because obviously when you're pottering around a bit like a sort of crazy person building a shed out of marshmallows in one's garden, which is what we were doing, you know, you have no idea how it's going to be received, have you? Um, so that's been fantastic. Um, uh, and I think that sort of al alliance between industry and academia has been really also part of why it's had such impact. I think that, you know, to do something real world, as it were, and for that to be part, allied to a research project, I think those two things really accelerate the impact of the project as a whole, if that makes sense. Um, in terms of uh, where it's going, um, yeah, I mean, we're interested in, in we are interested in developing actually to, to be a more widely applicable 
um, building product or building system. So maybe something a bit simpler in terms of the amount of machining, uh, reducing its cost, and therefore expanding its applicability in the marketplace, as it were, um, maybe taking some of the functions away from the cork, uh, probably most notably weathering. That's the thing that puts most complexity back into the cork, into the shape of the cork, is, is trying to deal with the weather. If you can take that off with a, with a nice, lightweight, um, maybe plant-based um, external sort of uh, rain screen technology, and maybe that's an interesting um, way to look at it, and maybe a little bit more timber in there to deal with the structure, deal with it. So maybe if you wanted to build something four or five stories high, it would be a more sort of timber hybrid thing. Um, so we're looking at some of that with some further research funding we've got from the Bartlett and be using any other projects. So for example, which, uh, which I'm obviously working with you on, which is the um, project for the Seoul Architecture Biennale. Um, uh, where, so again, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of pavilion built of these big lumps of cork. And again, we're using that to sort of try and move the system forward in the direction that I just uh, described, yeah. And I think we'll finish on this note now. It has been fascinating to talk to you, Matt, and thank you for accepting to be on the show. No, thanks for having me. It's great to talk. We're really looking forward to seeing the pavilion completed in Seoul and to continue our discussions on how to develop and promote cork as a construction material. Thanks, Pedro. Cheers. For those listening at home or wherever you may be, please don't forget to check out Cork House and also make sure that you follow us or bookmark us so you don't miss our next edition. Thanks for listening and until then, bye for now.